11 o'clock, it's good to be with you guys. It's been a while. Um, I've been preaching around at a lot of the congregations over the last few weeks. I've missed you. It's good to be back. Um, we are continuing through the book of Matthew together. My name is Matt Carter, in case you didn't know. And um, we're continuing through the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. If you have a copy of the scripture, you want to look at it yourself. Matthew 9, 35. If, if you don't, that's fine. I'm going to have the scripture behind me on the screen. Um, Matthew 9, 35. But I want to begin today by giving you guys a quote from a guy named A.W. Tozer. He's a great theologian. And this is a quote that for a long time I never really understood. And, um, but sort of the older I get, the more it's making sense to me. And here it is. He said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, again, I I, sort of growing up, I heard that and I never really quite understood it. But the longer I live, the more it makes sense to me. And here's sort of what it means is that what you think about when you think about God and sort of how he interacts with you, what you think about when you think about God, when you think about how he feels about you, what you think about when you think about God, when you think about how he thinks and feels and interacts with you, that is the most important thing about you because that's gonna impact everything about you, right? What you think about when you think about God. In other words, if you primarily think of of God sort of in your brain, sort of like Santa Claus, that he's this, you know, jolly old grandpa guy that just walks around smiling, getting, giving you whatever you want. I mean, that's gonna impact the way you think about and how you relate to God in your life. In the same way, if you primarily think about God as angry or disinterested, then that's gonna impact how you relate to God in your everyday life. You know, if you think about God as, and this was me for a long time, if you think about God as someone that just tolerates you, that that's gonna impact how you relate to him. If you're like, man, he, he doesn't really like me and I'm pretty sure he doesn't love me, but he just tolerates me. That's gonna, that's gonna impact how you relate to him. And so it's really important that when we think about God, we think about him rightly, that we, that we think about him biblically so that we can relate to him rightly and that we can relate to him biblically. And one of the things we're gonna see today in Matthew's text here is that it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus feels about and how Jesus thinks about and how Jesus relates to us specifically in the middle of our brokenness, sort of in the, in the middle of our sin and in, in the middle of our struggles and our pain. And, and here's the cool thing is that because we know Jesus is God, we, we get to see a picture of what God's heart is for us. In today's text, we're gonna see Jesus, we're gonna see something happen and Jesus is gonna be moved to this profound level of compassion. It's gonna move him, it's gonna be a punch in the gut to him, what happens? And then because Jesus is God, we know that that's how God actually feels about us. And so my prayer for us is that as we look at this text today, that we would walk away from it and we would think about God and we would not only think about him as a God of power, but we would think about him as a God of compassion. And then we would, because of that, be willing to do what it is that he tells us to do at the end of this story today. So let's jump in together. Matthew chapter nine, verse 35. We've been going through a series over the last few weeks called Fathom, where where Matthew is showing us Jesus' power and authority. And Matthew's made this clear over several uh, you know, chapters. Jesus has complete power and authority over everything, right? And then here, we're gonna see him talk about God's compassion. So check it out. He says, and he, and he went through, that's Jesus, and Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That's Matthew sort of right here as he's summing this whole thing up. He's saying, I wanna remind you about Jesus' power. He's powerful and because he's God, we can know that God is powerful, right? He healed every disease, he healed every affliction. But then watch what he says next. He said, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew is once again reminding us, yes, this whole thing I've been telling you, Jesus is God and he is powerful, but he's not just a God that's all powerful, but he is a God that's all powerful and also has compassion for us, which is really, really good news. And now I wanna look at that phrase for a second. He had compassion. So we're gonna leave that up there. I want you to look for a second at that underlying phrase. It said that Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion for them. To to understand what's going on and the significance of what Jesus is feeling in this moment, you gotta understand that that phrase, he had compassion in the original language that, um, that the New Testament was written in, which is Greek, that phrase is actually one word. It's one word. And it's a crazy long word. It's called uh, spang nidzomehi. And it's a word, that really long word, spang nidzomehi, it has this much deeper meaning in the original language than our word compassion does, okay? Because there's actually a couple of different words in the Greek for compassion. You got, um, there's spang I can't even say it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And, and the one that I'm gonna tell you what it means in a second. And then there's another word for compassion in the Greek. And that's a word that just means that like you see something that's awkward or you see something that's bad and you sort of cringe and you feel bad about it. That's one word you see in the Greek for compassion. Um, to give you an example, have you guys ever seen somebody that was singing the national anthem and they just slaughtered it? Like it just, it just bombed it. And think about what you felt in that moment. Um, and if you haven't, I actually want to show you a clip of somebody bombing the national anthem. It's not the whole thing. It's just really, really abbreviated because it's so cringeworthy that I didn't want to show the whole thing. And so, but I, I want to just, you'll see, you'll get the point. It's Carl Lewis, who was a famous track star and Olympian. And he's, I don't know why he was singing the national anthem, but he does. Check this out. Audio. Do we got it? All right, I'm gonna have to sing the national anthem to give you guys the, so there, there you oh, say, there we go. can you see? And the rockets, red Uh-oh, I'll make up for it now. For the land of the free. Yeah, I'll get the point, right? There's actually a clip in that where, I don't know if you caught it, where Michael Jordan is sitting there and he's just shaking his head like, this is so bad. But, you know, if you're anything like me, you, unless you're just mean, like you, you, you see that, and it's horrible if you wanna go look it up, it's so bad. But you, you see that and you feel a certain level of compassion for the guy. You know, you, you see it and you're like, ah, and you feel bad for him. But that's actually not the word that Matthew uses here for how Jesus felt when he saw these crowds of people. Matthew sort of writes and and he's explaining this thing that happened. He said that Jesus walked out and he saw these crowds and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he explains to us that what he felt in that moment was spangled zomahi. It's the significantly more powerful word than, than what we feel when someone's bombing the national anthem. And so I did a word study on it and check this out. I did looked in the little Greek study guide thing because I need one because I can't, I don't know anything about Greek. And, um, and this is literally what it said, the definition 
of spangnizomahi. This is what Jesus felt. It literally means this. It means to be moved to compassion at the deepest level of your organs. And then it said this, it really did. It said, especially your more noble organs, like the heart, lungs, liver, and kidneys, right? I didn't know that, you know, some organs were more noble than others, but apparently there are. And so Matthew uses this word, it's what Jesus felt. And his point is, is that when Jesus saw these crowds of people that were like sheep without a shepherd, he was moved to the deepest places of who he was. It, it was like a punch in the gut to him, okay? You know, so there's a, there's a certain level of compassion that kind of bubbles up when you see somebody like we just saw Carl Lewis, but then there's, then there's Spangnizomi which is what Jesus felt. And I just want to show you a picture. I want to show you a picture real quick. It's a really difficult picture to look at. I'm going to let you look at it probably longer than you're comfortable looking at it because I'm tr- I want to try to, to get your brain around what Jesus was feeling in this moment. So check this picture out. That picture right there, I'm going to leave it up for just a second. It was a picture that this photographer took of this kid in the 80s. And he was in Ethiopia. It was during the famine back then. And here's the thing about this picture is that when you look at it and you look at it long enough, you don't just feel bad and cringe and sort of move on with your life. You look at that and you start thinking, my goodness. It moves you. It's like a, it's like a punch in the gut. It, it, it ought to produce in you sort of level of compassion that moves you to the core, not like seeing somebody bomb the national anthem. I don't, I don't know about you, but the first thing, I, I, I felt sadness. And then I started getting mad, right? I started thinking about the, the guy taking the picture. I'm like, for crying out loud, man, put the camera down, you know? Go kick the vulture. Go shoot the vulture. Go pick up the kid, man. Love on him. Like, do something about it, Right? And what you're, what you're sort of feeling for this sweet little baby right now is spangnizomahi, folks. That's the word that Matthew uses for what Jesus felt in this moment. That when he saw suffering of just normal people, just everyday people, when he saw suffering of everyday people like you and me, that is what he felt. Okay, now... Y'all can take that down. There's about, there's about 10 different times in the New Testament where we see Jesus move to that level of compassion, where something happened and he saw it and it messed him up. And he was profoundly, deeply moved to the core of his being. And there's 10 different instances, but there's six different categories. So real quick, I'm gonna go through the six different categories that moved Jesus to compassion. Again, keep in mind that Jesus is God. It's fully God, fully man. And so what's moving him to compassion moves God to compassion towards you. Here's number one. Jesus was moved to compassion by people's pain and suffering. When Jesus saw people that were sick, just sick, when people saw, um, when Jesus saw people that had physical ailments like blindness, when Jesus encountered people that were being attacked and harassed by demons, he didn't just feel bad about it. He didn't just, it wasn't like a cringeworthy moment for him where he sort of felt bad about it. It said that he was moved to compassion, that it, it hit him and it messed him up and it was a gut punch to him in the deepest places possible of his soul. And number two, Jesus was moved to compassion by people's sorrow. This is comforting to me because I've experienced some sorrow in my life. 
that when Jesus saw sorrow, it moved him to Spagnid, Zomahik's level compassion. There's a story in the New Testament where this widow, her son had died and she's following along behind her son's body in the funeral procession. It's a profoundly sad moment. It hits Jesus as he sees it, that not only does this woman not have a husband, but, but she didn't have a son anymore. She has absolutely no one to take care of her. And in that moment, Jesus, in that moment, Jesus was moved to compassion, that he was moved in the deepest possible places of who he was. And again, I want you to think for a second about that quote, that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. When he saw, listen, when he saw earthly sorrow, specifically over death, when he saw death occur, what was interesting is that Jesus didn't sort of fold his arms and say, well, it's your fault. (laughs) You guys were the ones that sinned in the garden. You're the reason that sin's here in the first place, so suck it up. He could have, that's not what he did. He could have said something really prophetic right there. He could have said something really harsh and he'd been totally justified. But he does it when he saw suffering and death, it messed him up and it moved him to profound compassion towards the people that were experiencing it. Look at number three. Jesus was moved to compassion by people's physical needs. Just everyday physical needs moved him to compassion, a deep level of compassion. In Matthew 15, 32, it says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion. You look in the Greek, there's that word, on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm willing, I'm unwilling rather to send them away lest they faint on the way. That's, That's pretty crazy because that would be something that I would feel bad about like the other word, like Carl Malone, I'd feel bad about it. Jesus was moved to compassion. You know, he sees these people that had not eaten for a couple of days. And and it moved him so deeply that the the scripture, the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God uses that spangling zomahi. Jesus, this is what hit me when I read that, that Jesus was profoundly moved by things that don't even moderately move us. And that's really cool. And then number four, Jesus was moved to compassion by people's loneliness. Some of y'all need to hear that today. That when Jesus saw loneliness, it moved him profoundly. There was a guy that was a leper that approached Jesus and asked Jesus to heal him. And, um, and what's interesting about leprosy is, is that everybody back in the day thought it was contagious. And so not only is it a horrible disease that was physically debilitating, but it made you a complete outcast. And so when you were walking through a crowd or whatever, you actually had to announce yourself that you were a leper. So you'd walk through a crowd and go, hey, everybody, I got leprosy. And the the crowd would just part like the Red Sea. So nobody wanted to touch you. Nobody wanted to be touched by you. You were a complete outcast. And the scripture says this guy walks up to Jesus. He has leprosy and he said, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That is so interesting to me. He doesn't say you can heal me. He says, you can make me clean. What he's saying is, Jesus, you have the power to bring me back into the family because I'm an outcast. And it says, Jesus was moved to compassion. He saw the guy's loneliness and he healed him. And then number five, and this is when it starts probably hitting home for a lot of us and this is really good news. Jesus was moved to compassion by the suffering of sin in the children of God's life. 
He was moved profoundly and deeply by the suffering caused by sin in the children of God's, in children of God's life. Um, the instance that you see this phrase, Spagnazomahi, is in the story of the prodigal son, which is a parable, but Jesus is referring to God and referring to himself. You know the story. Son comes to his dad and says, Dad, um, I want my inheritance now. Basically said, I wish you were dead. Father, for whatever reason, gives him his inheritance early. The son takes the inheritance, goes to the faraway land, where Jesus said that he squandered his entire inheritance on prostitutes. And when he had spent it all, found himself in the pig pen, he's sin sick, he's weary, he's eaten slop, he's dirty, and he has this moment, Jesus said, where he came to his senses and says, I need to go home, not so that I can be a son, I could never be a son after what I just did, but maybe I can just go back and be a hired servant. So it says he got up and he rose and he came to his father. Let me read this to you. I want you to watch the father's response to the son that looked at him and said, I hope, you're, I hope you die soon because I want your money now. And then he squanders it on prostitutes. That's a pretty big deal, by the way. Y'all with me? Amen. I think Jesus put that in the story to show how bad this guy sinned. Watch, watch the father's response. Luke 15, 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Do you see it? There it is. Spangnitzomi. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Once again, what is the primary thing you think about when you think about God? Guys, when you fall into sin, and you know you shouldn't do it. You've asked the Lord to take it out of your life, but for whatever reason, he hasn't yet, and you fall into it. What do you think about God? Do you think he's angry at you? Do you think he wants to punish you? Do you think he gets to the point where he's like, that's it, I'm fed up with you. Um, I, I, I have to love you, but so now I'm just gonna tolerate you. Or do you think about God the way that Jesus says that we ought to think about God, which is that when he sees you in your sin and you take the smallest step towards him, that what you'll realize that in that moment, he never stopped looking for you. He always had his eyes on you and he was always longing for you to come home. Why? Because you are his daughter and you are his son and that can never change. And so when he sings the smallest step of you returning to him, you realize he's been watching you for the whole time. And when he sees you, he takes off in a dead sprint to you. And then he wraps you up, puts his arms around you, kisses you, embraces you, puts a ring on a finger, a robe on your back, and then throws you a party. That's how God views you. He is a God of compassion. And that's the best news I've ever heard in my life. Whether you're 50 years old today or whether you're 90 or whether you're 16, I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. I don't care if you've been walking with him for 90 years. I don't care if you're not a Christian at all. This is what I want you to hear. This is who Jesus is. I don't care what you've heard people say about him. I don't care what his followers have painted a picture of him about. This is who Jesus is. Because we know this is who Jesus is. We know this is who God is. And he's a God that when he saw sickness, when he saw pain, when he saw suffering, when he saw loneliness, when he saw sin, he did not hate. He did not dismiss, he didn't disdain, he didn't tolerate, he didn't shrug it off, but he was emotionally and physically and profoundly moved to compassion. You know, over the years, um, there's a phrase that I've heard um, 
about Christianity. It's sort of said in a negative context. Sorry, I have my nose is just running for some reason. Um, but it, there's a, a phrase I've heard about Christianity and it's said really in a negative context and I've heard it a lot lately. And it's this phrase that Christianity is just a crutch. Y'all ever heard that? Christianity is just a crutch. And the point of that statement is that the only reason that people come to Jesus is because they're weak. And the only reason that people come to Jesus is because they're broken. And the only reason people come to Jesus is because they can't help themselves. Well, I'm gonna tell you something that I've learned in my 46 years of life. Um, I'm 46 years old. It's a lot of young people at the Austin Sun. We love that. That's great. So if you're younger than 46, um, especially if you're a teenager, you're in your 20s, I wanna tell you something I've learned about me after 46 years of life, and it's this, that I realize at 46, I'm a lot more messed up than I ever thought I was when I was 20 years old. And y'all heard some people go, right, 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 right. Those are the old people in the room. I'm a lot more messed up. I realize I'm a lot more messed up now than I thought I was when I was 20 years old. When I was 20 years old, I, what I would do is I would compare my sin to other people's sin and I would think I'm not really that bad. I would look at the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, and I'm like, That's guy, that guy's an idiot who would do that. I remember reading Paul say that he was the worst of sinners. And I literally, I'm, I'm not saying this like sermon stuff. I remember thinking, Dang, Paul, what'd you do, bro? Like, I, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. I don't know that I could say that. I'm the worst of sinners. Um, but now that I've gone around the planet a few times, I don't really have that high view of myself anymore. I know what I've done. I know all the ways that I've sinned and that I've failed and that I've hurt people and that I've angered people. I know all the sins that I thought would be sanctified right now. <laughs> by now at 46 that sometimes still kind of rear their ugly heads. And so now when I hear the words of Paul that I'm the worst of sinners, now I'm like, I can relate to that, Paul, and I'm running a pretty tight race with you, actually. And so here's the thing, guys. When I hear the statement that Christianity is a crutch, is nothing but a crutch, I don't do this, but you know what I wanna say to people that say that? I wanna say to them, is that gum right, it's a crutch? but it's actually more like a wheelchair or a gurney or a defibrillator. Yes, Christianity is a crutch and I wouldn't have it any other way because the longer I live, I need you to hear this, young folks, the longer I live, the more I am absolutely convinced that I do not have the power to heal my own brokenness. I don't. I've tried, it doesn't work. I don't have the power to heal my own brokenness. I am in need, I am in need of a savior. I am in need of a healer. And so when I hear the, the Bible tell me that there's a God in heaven and he showed up in my flesh and he lived a perfect life. And, and, and by the way, this God loves me like crazy. And when he sees me in need, when he sees me in trouble, when he sees me in pain and sorrow, when he sees my sin, it profoundly and deeply moves him to compassion for me, it's the best news I've ever heard in my life. If Christianity is a crutch, shine me up. But there's one more example. There's one more example in the scripture that I wanna show you today. And this is sort of where I'm getting to this part where it's like, it's one of these things that I just don't have the ability as a preacher to kind of give you the passion to go live this out. It's gonna have to be God because Jesus is gonna say something and it's really hard and you're not gonna wanna do it. We'll see what the Spirit does. Last one, number six. 
Jesus was moved to compassion by everyday people's lack of Christ-like examples in their life. You you think leprosy and you go, that makes sense that Jesus would be moved that deeply. You see death and you go, "Ah, that makes sense. Jesus would be moved that deeply. You even see sin. You're like, I sort of get that. God's really awesome and he's loving God. I sort of get that, that he would be moved to that level of compassion. But then what we're about to see is Jesus is gonna be moved that to that level of compassion because there's this group of people that didn't have godly examples in their life. What's going on? Matthew 9, 36. It says that when Jesus saw the crowds, spangnizomi, there it is again. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He was profoundly moved. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So there's, there's one quick thing I want you to notice about that sentence that sort of starts realizing just how amazing Jesus is. And look at, that, uh, look at that first phrase in the sentence. It says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That's awesome. That's cool. That's so profound. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved to compassion because that is typically the opposite reaction of how we feel when we see crowds, Amen. You ever been to like Disney World and you're driving up and you're pumped and you're praying to God there's not gonna be any lines and you walk to the front and there's a line like a, like a mile long and you're moved to compassion but it ain't for the people in the line, it's for yourself, amen? You're not thinking, oh, I'm just so deeply, profoundly moved that that crowd has to stand in line. You're deeply and profoundly moved that you gotta stand in line. I was thinking about this, that what if after the service today I walk out and there's like a crowd of people that are protesting the Austin Stone because for whatever reason, they don't like us. And there's 200 people. I'm not gonna look at them and feel compassion for them. I'm gonna see them as a problem. I just will. I'm not gonna go, oh, these wonderful people, what is their problem? How can I love you and serve you? I'm gonna sigh. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's, that's what happens when, when we see crowds, we see problems. When Jesus saw crowds, he saw their pain and that's incredible it's so cool that he doesn't just see us as individuals but there's something eerily comforting about the fact that he sees us and so that begs the question what was going on in this crowd that that shook him to the core like that what was happening in this crowd that moved him to that level of compassion look at the text one more time in Matthew 9 36 it says that Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved to compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm gonna run through this really fast because we don't have a lot of time here. But harassed and helpless, that's another one of those examples in the Greek language that has all this depth of meaning that harassed and helpless stuff doesn't have. Those two words were always used together when there was a body being described that had been in a battle, somebody got killed, their body was laying face down in the mud in a battlefield and had been mangled by the enemy. A pretty descriptive word, right? I looked it up and it's like, this was the primary use of those two words. It was to describe a body in a battlefield that was laying face down and had been mangled by the enemy. And so Jesus looks out at this crowd and you start understanding, okay, I see why he was moved to that level because they were like a bunch of people that were laying face down in a battlefield that had been mangled by the enemy. And then the second thing he says that moved him to compassion was this, that they were in a state, they were in that state rather, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now listen carefully, don't miss this. What, what moved Jesus to that level of compassion was this crowd was in this harassed and helpless state because there was no one willing to lead them out of their misery. Just let that sink in. There's this crowd of people 
and they were they were they were hurting they were hurting and what moved him so profoundly is that there was no one willing to step into their pain and say there's a better way there's there's a place i want to take you that's a better story and it's a better answer and by the way this was a shot at the pharisees which are the religious jewish leaders that's a shot at them because what were the pharisees doing the Pharisees were supposed to be shepherding the people. The Pharisees were supposed to be pointing them to God. And it, but instead, when the people were trapped in the chains of our sin, they weren't pointing them to the grace of God. They were weighing them down and burdening them with the law. The Pharisees, when, when, when they saw people that were tired and, and broken and weary and desperately needed the, the, the peace of God, they, they just piled on more guilt and more shame and burdened them further. When, when these people were lonely and they were ostracized with community, they didn't lovingly invite them into the family of God, but they just flat out ignored them and did nothing about it. And Jesus saw these people that there was no one willing to wade into their need and it broke his heart. It broke his heart. Now, we could end the story right there and just stop right there and I could bring the band back up and we could start worshiping because we have a God that when he sees our need and our pain and our suffering, it profoundly moves him. That ought to be enough for you to praise God. Y'all with me, amen? That's good news, folks. He's not indifferent. He sees you. He sees your need. You're never gonna walk alone in this life. And that is the best news I've ever heard. We just sort of stop right there and praise God and be like, Jesus, you're amazing. You feel compassion for us. Let's go eat. Yeah. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus actually sort of ends the story really interestingly. And here it is. I want you to know that every single time in the scripture, every time when you see the phrase spangnid zomahi, that Jesus was moved to that level of compassion, he did something about it. Every time. Every time when Jesus saw some sort of need and he was moved that profoundly, he was moved to that level of compassion, he didn't just feel bad, really, really bad about it and then move on with his life. Every single time he did something about it. When he felt that level of compassion, he acted every single time, but this time. Every single time. Saw the sick person, healed him. Saw the grieving mother, moved compassion, brought the son back to life. Saw the leper, moved him, healed him. Saw the sin-sick son returning from the faraway land, moved him, ran to him. Every time he personally did something, except in this story, watch what he does. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for him. You see this moment where he was, he sees him, he's profoundly, deeply punched in the gut, he's moved. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he always does something about it. So you expect him in that moment to run down into the crowd and say, hey, everybody, I know you're harassed and helpless. You're laying face down like a, like a body that's been mangled in battle. But good news, the chief shepherd is here. Start healing people and loving on folks. That's not what he does. In verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, listen carefully, the harvest is plentiful. He's saying there's a lot of need out there. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, y'all see that need? There's a lot of need out there. 
I want you to be aware that there's a lot of need. The harvest is plentiful. But then he says, but the laborers are few. Hey, boys, you see the need? You see these people suffering? You see them in their state? There's nobody to lead them out of their misery. Why? The pain is a lot, but the workers are few. There's not many people that are willing to wade into people's story and make a change. And then he says this. This is his action. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. It's fascinating. Every single time and every one of the 10 times that Jesus was moved to that level of compassion, he personally did something about it. But on this time, when he saw the crowds of people that didn't have shepherds, he turns to his disciples and says, boys, here's what we're gonna do. I want you to get on your knees and I want you to pray that God would raise people up so that they could go do something about it. So interesting to me. Matthew has spent the last three chapters over and over and over again, shouting from the rooftops that Jesus has undeniable power and authority over everything. But here, Matthew tells us that what Jesus is doing here is that he, Jesus reminded us about one of the most important realities about Jesus' power, and that is that Jesus' power lives in you and me. And if people are gonna experience that power, we gotta pray that God would raise us up to show them that power. That the way that people are gonna experience the chain-breaking, storm-calming, dead-raising power of Christ is when they experience it through us. And so Jesus says, don't just pray when you encounter need and suffering and sin and death. Don't just pray, oh God, I hope they meet Jesus. But what we're to pray is, oh God, let them meet Jesus through me. That's not easy to pray for. That's not easy to pray for, especially when you, when you understand kind of how he's telling you to pray. Real quick, almost done here, hang with me. Watch what he says in verse 38. He tells us like how intensely you ought to be praying that. In, in verse 38, he says, therefore, harvest is plentiful, work is a few. Therefore, pray, watch what he says. He says, pray earnestly. Out of time here today, but here, here's what that means. Earnestly in the Greek literally means to beg. And it was a word that was used when you were begging something that was your need. So here's literally what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you see the need out there? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to beg God. I want you to beg God that he would raise you up to go intervene in those people's need with the same intensity that you would beg God to intervene in your own need. You in need today? A lot of us are. It's one thing when you actually have a need. It is not hard at all. When it hits you, God's powerful. It's not hard at all to beg God, God, would you heal my need? It's something altogether different. To beg God, when you see a need, God, make me a healer of that need. Most of us don't wanna do that. You know, it's one thing when we're in conflict to beg God, God, please, I'm in conflict, bring me peace. It's something altogether different when we're in conflict to say, God, would you bring this person I'm in conflict with peace? Would you raise me up 
to be a peacemaker, to pray that prayer with the same intensity, bring me peace. God, would you please, I beg you, would you raise me up to bring peace to this person I'm in conflict with? That ain't easy to do. When you're struggling in sin, there's some of us today, we came here, we're struggling with sin. It is not hard at all to cry out to God and beg God, God, please have compassion over my sin. I'm so sorry. It's something altogether different to beg God. God, would you have compassion on this person that sinned against me? And would you give me compassion over their sin? So like I said, this is one of those things that Jesus is asking us to do that the typical reaction in people is one that's like, um, I don't know if I can do that. Let's go eat. Or I don't really care. You know, and I read something really interesting. I, you guys know I'm a Charles Spurgeon fan, great pastor in the, in the 1800s, maybe the best preacher in the history of the world besides Jesus. And, and he said something, I was looking at one of his sermons about this text and he said something and it just sort of stalked me in this tracks. He said, this verse haunts me. He said, it's haunted me my entire life. He says, because I see the need outside these doors. I see the hurt, I see the pain, I see the sickness, I see the sin. And he says, this verse haunts me because I know in my heart of hearts that I am not moved to compassion the way my savior does and was. He says, it haunts me because he said, so often in my life, I find that when I see need and suffering and pain that I'm more like the Pharisees. That either make it worse or I ignore it. Instead of getting on my knees and begging God that he would raise me up to be this Christ called harvester and laborer. And so I just wanna ask you today, does that verse haunt you? When you hear the words of Jesus, when he says, see the need out there, you get on your knees and you beg. You beg in the way you would beg for him to meet your need, that he would raise you up, that you would be the solution to their problems. Does that haunt you? It does me. It does me. There's a, there's a song that we're about to sing and I hope that we sing it today as prayer. And it's a song that's called Make Me More Like Jesus. The bridge sort of begins and it says, Lord, change me like only you can. Because some of us, that's what we need. If we're, gonna, if we're actually gonna apply this verse today, if we're actually gonna do something about it, if we're gonna be the people Jesus is calling us to be, we're gonna have to be changed. And God is the only one that can change us. And then the song sort of tells us how we can be changed. He says, Lord, change me like only you can here with my heart and your hands. And so I pray, Father, make me more like Jesus. That's, that's the action step today. That today before you leave, you say, God, and you beg him, God, would you make me more like Jesus? And the song goes on and it says a line to me that's haunting, if you wanna use that word. It says, this world is dying to know who you are. Isn't that true? Has there ever been a time in your life that you've kind of looking at the culture and, and seen the division and the, and the suffering that's going on in the world today. This world is dying to know the love of Jesus. Not me, but the Savior is looking at you, believer, and he's saying, would you be willing today? Would you have the courage today to pray a dangerous prayer? Father, make me more like Jesus. Make me more like Jesus. 
And I say it's dangerous because when you're praying that, here's what you're praying. When you're begging that, here's what you're begging. You're begging God, God, display your power through me. I believe you're powerful and I believe that you have unlimited power. Would you display that power through me? You're also praying, God, give me compassion. Don't let me walk through this world like the Pharisees. When I see things that broke your heart, God, would they break my heart? And finally, when you pray that prayer, make me more like Jesus. You're saying that I would not just be a person that feels bad about things out there, but that I would get on my knees and I would beg God that he would raise me up to be the one to do something about it. There's all kinds of need in here. And there's all kinds of need in your life. God's saying, you're the one. You're the one. Will you pray that prayer with me? Let's pray. With your head bowed and eyes closed as the band comes forward, we're about to sing that song together, but I just wanna wanna remind you of a couple weeks ago, if you weren't here, we had seen Jesus heal this little girl by calling her his daughter and taking her by the hand and bringing her from death to life. And he healed this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, who was an outcast. Um, and, and, and the reason that he healed her is because she just had the smallest amount of faith to come to Jesus with her need. And it profoundly moved him and he healed her. And, and Aaron Ivey did something interesting. He said, you know, we've got needs all across this congregation today. Would you come to Jesus with your need? Maybe you need to get on your knees. Maybe you need to lay down on the floor. Maybe you need to go to the back. Maybe you need to go to the front. But come to Jesus with your need. And man, people did it. There were people all over this room that were laying down, that were on their knees, that had their hands in the air, and they were crying out to God, and they were begging God, God, I am in need. Would you heal me? Christian, would you be willing to do that same thing for other people's needs? The only way you'll get there. I say, God, change me like only you can. This world is dying to know who you are. So Father, I pray, make me more like Jesus. There's no better way. There's no other way that I'd rather spend my life. So Father, I pray that for myself. I pray that I would stop being apathetic about what broke your heart. I pray that you would raise up many in this room to do what you ask us to do, which is to beg you for laborers for the harvest and that we would answer the call and we'll say we will be the one. We love you. And we say, Jesus, you are worthy of that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together. We'll sing this song to the Lord today.